Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, hey, good morning, church. How we doing? Woo! All right. Online, we hope you're having a a good morning as well. Um, We are launching into a brand new series called Into the Wilderness. We're going to be in Exodus. We're starting at the end of Genesis, so you can flip or click open your Bibles to Genesis 50. We're going to continue into Exodus 1. We'll get there in just a little bit. But quick show of hands or uh, emoji sent on your chat online. Uh, who got to join us last week for, uh, for Easter? Raise your hand. Yeah, woo. Any woos? Kind of a couple woos even. Cool. Okay, different show of hands. Raise your hand if you had a, uh, one of those uh, cinnamon rolls last week. Okay, more of you than I did. Um, fun story about those cinnamon rolls. So about like three months before Easter, maybe two and a half, I don't know, somewhere in there, we start planning for Easter, right? We're like, okay, what is it we're going to do? And Jeff Milhon, man, this guy, Pastor Jeff, just comes in hard with, we got to do cinnamon rolls. We need to do cinnamon rolls. And in my head, I'm like, well, that just seems like a lot of work, Jeff, to be able to do cinnamon rolls. like, no, we're going to do them. We're going to bake them like it's going to be great. And so he orders these cinnamon rolls and the first package comes like a week and a half before Easter. And it wasn't in a refrigerated truck or van. And so I don't know if any of you guys know anything about like yeast, but when it gets warm, it begins to swell. Um, And so that thing was like a water balloon inside a cardboard box with yeast. And so then he's like, all right, I'm going to reorder. So he reorders from a different place in Pennsylvania on Friday before Easter. Yeah, not the, I'm sorry, the Friday before, a week before Easter. Anyway, um, so all week I'm like, Jeff, where are the cinnamon rolls, man? Hey, are they, where are the, tell me the cinnamon rolls here. And like almost every single day, his, his same answer, just unflappable Jeff Milhon. They're in transit. They're in transit. Over and over and over again until Thursday they showed up, they were frozen, and then Jeff and his team were here uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, really, really early getting all, uh, I think it was like 400 of them or something like that, uh, baked and out there and ready to go, and they were delish. Uh, So beyond that, though, beyond just the cinnamon rolls, man, we did baptisms last week. We did, uh, of course, the Word. We had music. And in here, I know a lot of you didn't get an opportunity to see what was going on in here, but Stephanie and her team, they took over this space and they did an egg extravaganza, E-G-G, egg pun? No? Okay. That's how I felt about it, too. I was like, okay, that's okay, fine. Um, but, uh, but they had all the lights off. They did black lights, and they had, like, glow-in-the-dark Easter eggs and glow-in-the-dark glasses. And she taught them about Jesus and the resurrection. The stage was awesome. Uh, this week, we're going to post pictures from from Easter and that morning too, so you can see everything uh, that our kids and uh, adults got to do as well. Um, but, uh, but it was a great week, and I'm so glad if you got to join us. I'm so glad you were, you were here. But one of the things that we've been hinting at is this brand new series, like I said, called Into the Wilderness. We're going to be walking through the book of Exodus kind of at a leisurely rate. We're not going to do a deep dive necessarily into the book of Exodus, but we are going to cover everything in the book of Exodus. So we are going to do kind of a subject-by-subject Uh, trek through all the way through, um, and it's going to actually take us through uh, the middle of the summer. So if you are one of those people who enjoys kind of reading along with us as we we walk through a book of the Bible, 
Um, about two to three chapters a week um, will kind of get you there roughly um, through, the, uh, through that entire book. Um, but, uh, but while you're kind of flipping there and getting there and that sort of thing, one of the things I want you to think about is this thing that we call our testimony. Okay, if you've been around church for, for any amount of time, you'll probably kind of understand what it is that that, that word means. Um, but it's essentially your path to Christ, how it is that you've arrived where you are uh, with Christ. I want you to think for a second about your own. Because okay, for some people, uh, you simply grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents and you never strayed away from the body of Christ. Okay, that's kind of mine for the most part. Okay, for others of you, though, maybe you, you came to faith at, a, at some point in your life, but before that, you had no clue about who God was, and, and you maybe, maybe reveled in some sort of sin, hoping to fill yourself up with something different, something other than God, only to find yourself here at some point with a guy like me at some point, talking about a guy named Jesus at some point as well. And that maybe that's your testimony, but it's testimony, it essentially has three parts to it. Okay? The first part of your testimony is your life before you came to faith in Christ. Who were you before? Okay, so for me, it was I grew up in a Christian home um, and I, I went to church every single Sunday and that's, you know, I never knew anything apart from that, right? But for others of you, maybe that wasn't, maybe that's, uh, that's not the case. But I want you to think about that for a second. Who were you? What was your life about? What things did you think about? What things did you care about before you came to faith, a real saving faith in Christ? So think about that for just a second. But, but, but that's the first part. Okay, the second part of your testimony that I want you to think of is, is how you came to know Christ. Like, what, what was that moment that you came to know him at some point? So again, like for me, I'm eight years old, I'm laying in the bottom bunk of my bed, and I think to myself, you know what a good idea would be? To go to heaven. Okay, hey mom, can you pray with me that I would accept Jesus into my heart? And she was like, yep, and that was my, like at that point, that was me. Maybe you're different though. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a different family member. Maybe it's a friend you shared over coffee at some point and, and they were talking to you about Jesus. You're like, hey, that's a good idea. Maybe you just got dragged to church enough, right? Dave Fox always says that he had a drug problem when he was little. He got drugged to church over and over and over again. Yeah, kind of may, maybe that was you, right? That eventually, like, you just came to faith in Jesus. Maybe, maybe um, you were somebody who went to a Billy Graham crusade at some point. I remember I was 14, and some of my friends got saved for the first time when I went to a Billy Graham crusade. And I'm pretty sure, by the way, that that guy could have, could have been reading from the yellow pages, and people still would have come to Jesus, okay? I mean, that's just how incredible of an evangelist he was. But that second part of your testimony is really how it is that you came to faith in Christ. And lastly, your testimony ends with how your life is different now that you know who Jesus is. Okay, your, your motives and your emotions have probably, uh, have probably changed. How you live and the way that you think uh, may be different now. And for all of us, this, this piece of our testimony, this last piece, this third piece of our testimony is still being written. Okay, so for those of you who think I have a really boring testimony, like I grew up in church, my parents knew Jesus, I got saved, and then I'm now still a part of the family of Christ. Okay, my testimony, my personal testimony is still being written. My testimony will continue to be written until the day that I die because there's different hardships that are going to come up. There's different trials and tribulations that are going to come up. And my testimony will change based on those, those, uh, those couple things. 
Okay, so think about your testimony, what it is that your testimony looks like. And the reason I say that is because the book of Exodus largely is a testimony of the Israelite people, a snapshot in time. Okay, there really is kind of a cycle that goes on uh, in, the, in the entirety of, of the Bible, kind of an Exodus type of cycle. Okay, and you'll see that, and you'll see it, I, you know, I'm about to start the book of Judges in my, my own personal quiet time. You can see it in the book of Judges over and over and over again, where Israel, like God delivers Israel. Israel loves God. They acknowledge God. They do the things that God tells them to do. Then they turn their back on God, okay, and all of a sudden they're reveling in sin, and, and they don't know who God is anymore, and then God sends somebody to redeem them, somebody to, hey, I'm going to direct you right on the, back, on the path, and then it goes in a circle again, over and over and over again. The Exodus story and the majority of the rest of the Bible really travels through that same pattern, the same pattern that each and every one of us have in our own testimony as well. But before I get to scripture, I do, I do want to share a frustration that I have, and it's not with a, a person in, in particular or anything like that. It actually uh, is with the Old Testament, Okay, and bear in mind, just because I say I have a frustration with the Old Testament doesn't mean that it's not true or I shouldn't read through it or anything like that. But for those of you who have tried to read through the Old Testament at any point in time, it's kind of difficult. Show of hands, Old Testament kind of hard to get through? Okay, good. So you guys agree with me. Um, and and so, so I get frustrated with it at times because in my own quiet time, I've been traveling a bit more in depth uh, through, the, through the, uh, the Old Testament. I'm finishing up the, uh, the book of Joshua last week. And so, of course, I've been through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like, I've been going through it. Uh, and, and next week, like I said, I'll get into Judges. But my frustration comes from this kind of historical narrative that I have no context for, right? It's kind of hard as I read through it that, man, it's really difficult for me to understand some of these stories, to understand why God would act in this way, to understand uh, some of these places and names and all of these kind of, kind of different things. I, d- I don't understand a lot of it unless I get in and really dig in and study, And actually, when I was working on this uh, on Wednesday, uh, I was reading through Joshua chapters 6 through 10 was my quiet time. And it's all about Joshua conquering conquering God's enemies. And God, he tells him to kill all the men. He tells him to kill all the women. Tells him to kill all the children. Sometimes he says, hey, go ahead and take the livestock, plunder the city, get those riches. And other times he's like, nope, wipe out the livestock as well. And I don't want you to take a single thing from that camp. Okay, there are parts in there where kings' bodies are strung up on poles for an entire day. Like, I'm like, what? why is this important for me to read? Why is this important for me to understand? And, I, and that's not just the brutal parts of the, of the Old Testament, right? I mean, I get frustrated with that because I don't understand it, but then there's a ton of names and places that I'm not necessarily readily familiar with, right? It'd be one thing if, if it said, you know, there was a battle going on in Lemoore, and it spilled over into Hanford before the enemy fleed all the way, all the way towards uh, uh, Visalia, right? Like, we would understand that. We would have some sort of context for it. We'd be like, oh, yeah, I know where Lamora is, where Hanford is, where Visalia is. Like, that makes, that makes sense to me. Or something like, you know, Pastor Jeff and, and Pastor Kyle went out onto the lawn to practice their sword fighting. Like, we would understand that. We would understand kind of some of those things. But it doesn't. It says things that aren't familiar to us. It says things like in Joshua 7, 17 and 18, it says, uh, the clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. 
He had a clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. You guys all understood that, right? You guys got that? You guys know who Zimri is? You guys have context for Zimri in the Bible? Okay, and so that's why this can be hard. That's why the Old Testament can be hard because we don't have context for it. We don't understand uh, a lot of it. Okay, and I don't understand, I don't readily understand a lot of those names and places either until I get in and I begin to study it in more context, in more depth, because right now I don't have context for it. And so a lot of the Old Testament can feel intimidating. And so my goal for today is, is as we launch into Exodus, is to be able to give you a little bit of a 30,000 foot look at the book of, the, uh, at the book of Exodus Okay, we're going to back up into Genesis a little bit, talk about how the book of Genesis ended so we can see how the book of Exodus needs to start and begin to give you a little bit of context so when we actually launch in in depth next week that we can understand where we're starting from. Okay, so I don't, I, I don't know about you, but, but as I'm reading the Old Testament, though, I have to consistently ask myself the question, why is this important? Why is the Old Testament important? I think that's lost on a lot of us in a church, in a group of people who, who we celebrate the resurrection. We did last week. And the resurrection narrative is relatively simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Okay, the resurrection narrative is you're, we're all sinners. None of us are good enough to go to heaven. God loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross for you. He conquered death. We celebrated that last week. And now I get to go and live, be in heaven forever right? It's the same thing. We teach that from the stage. We teach that to our kids. We teach that to our students. Like it's a very simple understanding. So why is it then if I live on this side of the resurrection that I need to read the Old Testament? Why do I need to read the entirety of the Bible? A lot of which is simply Jewish history. Why is it? And so as we walk through this series, my goal is to be able to remind us why. Not only why you should read the Old Testament, but why it's incredibly important to our own faith. It's incredibly important to our own understanding of who God is. And in order to do that, we're going to take, uh, take like I said, we're going to take a look at the book of Exodus at 30,000 feet. So I'm going to give you a couple quick hits and then we're going to get to scripture because I know some of you are squirming. Okay, So a couple things that you need to know about the, um, the book of Exodus. It's your second book in the Bible. So if you're still flipping, go left. Okay, It's the second book in the Bible for you. Okay, um, And it's actually also the second book um, in what is called the, the, the Torah. The Hebrew Torah simply means kind of law or instruction. It's the first five books of the Bible. Okay, in the English title of Exodus here, we actually get that understanding from, from the Septuagint. It's the Greek noun exodus to mean going out or departure. Okay, and that really is going out, departing from Egypt, right? Uh, 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 Prince of Egypt, let my people go, Charlton Heston, like that whole thing. That's the first part of Exodus. So if you want to read the, or understand the first half of Exodus, either go watch the cartoon or go watch Charlton Heston say, let my people go to Pharaoh and you'll be ahead of the curve for next week. Okay, but that's largely what it's talking about, going out, departure. And the author of this book, it's generally credited to Moses, Okay, most people don't understand who wrote the Old Testament. This is generally credited to Moses. He also happens to be kind of the main character in the book as well. Okay, so we need to understand some of those things. 
And as we're looking at the main theme of this book, like what, like as we read through the book as enti- from in its entirety, from chapter one all the way through the end, what would the theme of the book of Exodus be? Okay, I, re- I really do think the book of Exodus over and over and over again speaks to God's promises, speaks to who he is, speaks to him saying this is going to happen and it coming into fruition over and over and over again. Okay, this book, it kind of reads like an epic story. You have the villain, right, in Pharaoh, an unlikely hero in Moses, and a whole bunch of obstacles along the way, right? It's a shire and a hobbit short of an incredible epic story. Some of you got that. But it has some incredible parallels to our own salvation, that own salvation narrative that, that we will land the plane with in a little bit. But in order to fully understand our starting point, let's back up to Genesis 50, like I said we were going to. So, um, so let's just jump in. In Genesis chapter 13, we have a guy by the name of Abram. Abram is kind of God's guy. Okay, God over and over and over again makes promises starting with Abram and continuing down to his kids. But Exodus, or Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17, it says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted him, he says, look around from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east, to the west, all the land that you see will give, or I will give to you and your offspring forever. Hear that. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. This is God's promise to Abraham here, saying, hey, look, this is the land that your people, this great nation that's going to come from you, that that if anybody could count the dust, that's how many of you guys there would be as well. I'm going to give this to you. This is God's promise to Abraham. The problem is, is that when we get to the end of the book of Genesis, this promise still hasn't been fulfilled. But God doesn't just say this promise once to Abram. He actually says it again to Abram's son. It is now Abraham at that point. But he promises this great nation to Isaac as well. Yeah, he does that in Genesis 17, 19 to 21, if you want to look that up. And then one more time to Jacob. That's Isaac's son. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 15, 16, he says the same thing. That God is making promise after promise after promise in the book of Genesis that he is going to establish the nation of Israel over and over and over again. Actually, God, he even changes Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32, 28. He's like, hey, you are now Israel and this nation is going to come from your line. But God kept promising them that they were going to be a great nation. But again, nothing comes to fruition. Actually, it was hardship after hardship that kept happening, all the way until you get to the end of the book of Genesis, when Joseph becomes second in command of Egypt. We remember Joseph, the multicolored dream coat, right? He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. They bring the coat back. They pour blood on it. Joseph's dead. Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. Okay, so Joseph is set, and if you want context for this, again, go read like the last 12 chapters of the book of Genesis before next week and you'll be completely caught up. Okay, but Joseph, he becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And because of Joseph, there's this, there's this famine in the land that Joseph had now prepared for. 
Okay, and so Pharaoh's like, yeah, you, that guy's in charge. You're in charge of, of distributing all of this food that we've saved up because of who you are. And so Joseph's brothers who had sold him into, into slavery, all of a sudden they're really hungry because the famine breaks out. And so Joseph's family, they come in and they're like, hey, hey, can we get some food? And they don't recognize Joseph at first, probably because he was so tan from hanging out in that Egyptian sun, right? And so because of that, Man, Joseph, he reconciles, he gives his brothers food, they, they figure out who he is, and Pharaoh loves Joseph so much that he's like, hey, bring your family to come live in Egypt. I got a spot for them. Okay, we'll give them land, they'll have peace, we'll take care of them, they won't have anything that they need to worry about. So that's Joseph and his family, that's actually how they got to Egypt in the first place, as God uses a famine to displace them into another location. Okay, so, so Joseph was actually thought of so well that, that he was promised a pretty le- easy life for as long as he lived. Okay, him and his family, like I said, were allowed to live in Egypt, had a cush life, and things are going really well for them. And then we get to Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 and tw- 22 through 26. And this is actually how the end of the book of Genesis, or how Genesis ends. It says, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. So that's Jacob, right? Israel. All of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. I don't know about you, um, you, especially if you have grandkids or great-grandkids or anything like that, but, but the fact that, that Joseph lived to 110 and got to, at the very least, even place those great-grandkids on his knee. And I remember when I was young and my grandpa was dying, I was in fifth grade, and uh, my, my aunt had just had a baby and so I remember that she brought the baby over. He's like a month old. My grandpa had about a month to live or so. And he's sitting there holding that baby. And he's crying. And my aunt's crying. And my mom's crying. And uh, the baby was actually the only one, I think, not crying in this story, which is strange. Um, but I, look, I remember asking my mom, like, why, why is everybody crying right now? And she's like, because this is, I mean, he's, he's going to grow up not knowing who his grandpa is, all that stuff. But the joy for my grandpa, though, to be able to sit there with his grandson. What a blessing that that is. So verse 24, then Joseph said to his brothers, all of his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, right? I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay? Book closed. Scroll rolled up. So as it closes, we need to understand three very important things. Okay, the first thing we need to understand is we're getting context for understanding to push into the book of Exodus is right now everything is currently going pretty well for the Israelites. Things are going pretty decently 
for them. They have land. They have peace. They are thought of well by Pharaoh, right? They are settled. And for a lot of us, kind of in regards to our lives, in regards to, to our testimony in our faith, we have peace. We have prosperity. We have maybe thought of, we're maybe thought of well by those who are in our lives. For the most part, we're, we're settled. You know, whether or not life is, is perfect or not, we, for the most part, are kind of a, we're a settled and we're a content people, for the most part. I don't know if your life is perfect or terrible, but for the most part, being a Christian in America, we can have peace. But, much like the Israelites, God has something more for us. Even though we have this little corner of land and we're at peace and, and man, things are decent and we have prosperity and things are good, God has something more for us. And that's the second thing we need to understand because Joseph reminds the Israelites of God's promises to them. He says, hey, look, think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about those things. Think about the promises God made that he was like, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to deliver you into this land. You don't want to know why it's called the promised land? Because God promised them the land. Right? So God's like, hey, look, I'm going to give you, I am promising you all of this stuff. And at the end of Genesis, God still haven't delivered on that promise. And so, so, uh, so, so he reminds them at that point, hey, look, this is what I am, I am promising you. Okay, I, 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 even though things are going well for you, like us, even though things are going well for you, for the most part, life is good, and we all have struggles, we all have hardship, but, but if, if we compare our lives to the struggles that many other people have, we're doing pretty okay. We can live peaceably. We need to recognize, though, that this is not our home, that God has something better in store for each and every one of us. And I do think that this, like, I think in America that this is the most difficult piece of the puzzle for us. This piece right here. That even though things are going well, that, that, that this is not our home. God has something better for us. Because, excuse me, because for the most part, American Christians do not encounter much persecution. We really don't. And I'm not talking like, hey, somebody made fun of you at some point. I'm talking like, Lay down your life, physical threats about who you are and what you believe, persecution. We're not a persecuted people. This is not our home. And even though we are settled and at peace, God has something greater for us, even though it may challenge our comforts. In the same way that later on in the book of Exodus, man, the Israelites' comforts are challenged. God says, hey, I have something greater for you. It's really simple. I'm going, I'm going to deliver on my promise, but it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be comfortable. But watch me walk you through it. Watch me lead you through it. If, if we were to suggest in the same way that kind of our version of Christianity is the end-all, be-all uh, version of Christianity, we're, we're, we're selling Christianity very short. Yeah, I'd actually like to suggest that the Christian faith should actually be incredibly uncomfortable. There's a whole bunch of scripture about this. Most of this is in the gospel. All of it's the New Testament. We got a couple that I'm going to refer to in, in 2 Timothy as well as Galatians. Okay, but all of scripture talks about, 
all of the New Testament, all the gospel talks about this is uncomfortable. To be a disciple of Jesus, you need to deny yourself. It says that in Matthew 16, 24. Deny yourself. All of yourself. It says in Luke 14, 27, to take up your cross. You know what the cross is a symbol of? Death. Take up your cross. It says that we need to be subject. We will be subject to persecution in John 15, 20, as well as 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says that we need to give up creature comforts of home in Luke 9, 58. We need to forsake the priority even of family. It says that in Luke 9, 59 to 62, as well as 14 to 26. We need to be willing to give up all our material possessions. Matthew 19, 21, Luke 14, 33. To be crucified with Christ, as it says in Galatians 2, 20. And that's just the beginning. Like that, that's the majority of this is straight from the mouth of Jesus. That, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable, but it is going to be better. This is going to be comfortable, but it is going to be better. C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis. He once said this about, about comfortable Christianity. He said, I didn't go into religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But, but kind of comfort-seeking, it's our, it's our default mode in our society. So we often find ourselves in comfortable Christianity even without knowing it. God has called us to more than comfort. His promises are greater, but those promises also come with a cost. Hey, but the good news is, is that God doesn't send us to do it alone in the same way that the Israelites were not alone. Verse 24 again, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. But God will surely come to your aid. Continue to wait on God. He made a promise to you. He is a promise keeper. When Joseph died, and just before that, he told them that God would help him. This isn't a, a standalone narrative here. This is speaking directly to the character of God. Who God is, is what this is talking about. That, hey, God is going to help you because God loves you. He's made that promise to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He's like, hey, look, this is going to be hard, but I'm here to help you. Okay? You're destined for hell, but hey, I'm going to help you. I am going to come to your aid. God requires much of those who follow him. A lot of those who follow him. But he says that he will help you, God, he will help you and he will guide you. But these verses at the end of Genesis are kind of just, they're, they're a conclusion to a story. Right, you see the end of the verses, and you're like, wait, hold on. The like, the story, it can't end here. God's made a whole bunch of promises. We have this people group who's completely and totally displaced from where they're supposed to be. Like, they're living in Egypt, and they're just, like, kind of comfortable. Like, there's no, we have no resolution to this story here. Hey, Joseph died. A period is placed at the end of the sentence, and the scrolls rolled up. We're done. It's a, it's a massive cliffhanger that we have here it's kind of like those netflix shows right that every single time you finish a netflix show like the next one starts in three seconds and you lose all cognitive ability to be able to say no and stop it because you have to know what happened 
right? Like Joseph, or, or Moses rather, the guy who wrote this is like the, original, or the originator of binge-watching TV apparently. Because he stops it with a period. There's a cliffhanger. What is happening with this group of people? It's kind of like Avengers Infinity War, my all-time favorite movie. And if you haven't seen it, I don't feel bad for spoiling this movie for you. It's been out for like five years. You had your opportunity. Okay? But at the end of the movie, literally half the universe dies and all of the superheroes lose. All of them. Every, like, and there is a period placed right there. I was actually remember I, I was watching it, my, my wife and I went to it, and then we had a, a, a pastor who I was working with at the time was in the same theater as well. And I had geeked out and read up on it. I knew it was like this crazy cliffhanger at the end. And so everybody dies, or half the universe dies, and I'm like, all right, man, that was crazy, such a good movie. And I get up to leave, and he's sitting there in his seat, in his seat and he's like, what the heck just happened? And he was just sitting there, like, okay, well, Peter, when does the next one come out? I'm like, a year? He's like, I have to wait a year to find out what happened? Good news for us. End of Genesis 50, you can turn the page, Exodus 1, okay? So we're going to keep moving through here because there's no closure. The story still needs to be finished because we have a ton of answers that are just kind of left floating out there for us. So we begin to flip and read through Exodus 1. We're going to be in 1 through 7 today, okay, as we conclude. And it largely simply rehashes what we already know. Well, what I already told you, but let's read through it, starting in verse 1. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob, the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Okay, so these are just all of his sons. These, these men, these sons turn into what we know now as the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so this is who they are. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay? And for this week, I, just, I want you to sit in this. I want you to just sit right here. They are comfortable. They are settled. Everything is good right now. Not great, but not bad. We got food. We got land. We're just kind of content and I want you to sit here because God, God has called you to something greater than your comfort. He's called you to something greater than your preference. Why is it important that we, evolve, like, that we avoid falling into comfortable Christianity? Why is it? Because, because comfortable Christianity is, is far from this kind of costly, inconvenient, idol-crushing, cross-shaped path for disciples of Jesus. Okay? Comfortable Christianity has very little prophetic things to say to a comfortable, consumeristic world, a world that, that glorifies immediate gratification. Comfortable Christianity has little urgency and mission, has little urgency and aptitude for growth. Okay, comfortable Christianity is, hey, I'm going to show up on Sunday and that's going to be it. That's my version of Christianity. That's, that's, the, that's the bare minute. That's not even what we're called to. It's not even close to what we're called to. That's what we've said is good in America. We're like, hey, look, this is what Christianity looks like. Come on Sunday and you're good. Check that box. And you don't even have to talk about it. You don't even have to think about it until next Sunday. That's all you got to do. It's the epitome 
of comfortable Christianity. Uncomfortable Christianity, however, leads to to life. It leads to, to transformation. It leads us to rely on God and not on ourselves, to serve rather than to be served, to live lives marked by sacrifice, to give up our own preferences for the sake of other peoples who don't yet know him. It leads us to do hard things. It leads us to embrace hard truths, to do life with difficult people for the sake and the glory of the one who did the hardest thing. It may be uncomfortable, but it will be worth it. Because on the other side, on the other side of discomfort is delight in Christ. And to be fair, man, sometimes it's hard, it's hard to know how far we've strayed from the course until we recede, receive an outside reminder. Like this idea of comfortable Christianity, actually in 1883, the scholarly community, I'm not a part of that, but the scholarly community, they were absolutely riveted. Just, I mean, they were geeking out when there was this previously unknown Christian document from the second century was rediscovered and published, right? Absolutely geeking out over it. See, what happened is early church leaders, they, they, there was this thing that they talked about, okay? It was a book called The Teaching of the Apostles that had somehow gotten lost in the shuffle of history, like a lot of documents have and that sort of thing. But this book, now commonly called the Didache, or Didache, or Didache, however you want to say it, uh, which is, it's the Greek word that means the teaching, Okay, and it seems to be a second century church handbook on how to make disciples. It's fascinating. It's like there's this whole, whole book that it's like, hey, you want to make disciples? Here's how. Give them free coffee and donuts. It's crazy. It's written right there in the, it's not. But if we were to create a similar document today, I wonder how we would even begin a document like that. Maybe we would be tempted to list like all of the benefits of becoming a Christian or, or how Jesus meets all of our needs and desires. Right? That, would be, that would be American Christianity, comfortable Christianity for the most part. I'm not saying this is how all Christians act in America or anything like that, but that is the overwhelming sense of the majority of Christians in America. Is that if we wrote it, what, what would it look like? Man, Jesus is going to deliver you from all of your sins. Yeah, I would say that. And man, you get, part of, get to be a part of your entire, like this awesome community of faith, the people who, who share the same wisdom, who share the same knowledge, who, who share the same understanding that God sent his son to come and die for our sins. And yeah, it would be part of it. Those benefits would be part of it. But you want to know what the first line of this document actually is? The first line of this document, it says there are two ways There's a way of life and a way of death. And the difference between these two ways is great. There's two ways, a way of life and a way of death, and the difference between these two ways is great. So in order to become, like like this is, man, the teachings, teaching of the apostles here, handbook on how to become a better disciple, they start with, hey, there's two ways, a way of life and a way of death. Pick one. And if you don't choose the way of life, you've automatically chosen the way of death. There is no middle road here. It's difficult. It's hard. So as you go about your week, I want want you to have to ask yourself the hard question. 
That as you, uh, like, are you walking towards a testimony, a testimony that's God honoring, a life that is well lived, so at the end of the day you hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, I, just, I was on Facebook yesterday for no good reason, because there's never a good reason to be on Facebook. Thank you for joining us on Facebook, everybody who's watching this right now. <laughs> I understand the irony. But I was on Facebook yesterday, and uh, actually one of my students that I had when I was in Apple Valley, his, I, I just found out his dad just died of brain cancer. Um, and his dad, uh, or he's the same age that I was when my dad died of brain cancer. Different types of cancer and all that stuff, but, but the, the thing that those two men, and I knew his dad, and I of course knew my dad, the thing that those two people had in common is that they weren't they weren't just there for creature comforts. They wanted to honor God with their lives. They wanted to, to move towards the way of life. There were times it was hard. Man, my dad walking through it and never once praying for deliverance, but just praying that God would be glorified the entire time. I doubt the Israelites could say that as they're, they're wandering in the desert, which is when we're going to get to soon. And I bet they were praying for deliverance all the time. God, deliver me, deliver me. The way wasn't easy, but it was going to be better. It's the same exact thing for us in our lives. The way isn't always easy, but it is better. God promises us that. So again, as you're going throughout your week, are you choosing that God-honoring way of life? Or are you going the other direction, living a life and, and the testimony of, of self-gratification and death? You know, God has called us to something greater. And God has promised that he was going to hold us up after we perish to eternal life for those of us who have called on his name. But our responsibility on earth is simple. It's not easy, but it is Simple. Our responsibility on earth is, is why our mission statement here is so simple as well. And we want to love God, we want to love people, and we want to serve the world. Does your testimony look like that? Does your life look like that? Even though you're currently comfortable and you recognize, like the Israelites, there's, there's a rough road ahead, but it is better. Is that how you're living your life? Because that's what Christianity has called us to, to uncomfort. And I'm so excited to share with you in the coming weeks about how all of this plays out with the Israelites in their lives as well. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful. <clears throat> I'm so thankful for your son. I'm thankful for his word, for your word. God, I'm thankful for Jewish history. I'm thankful that, that we can understand who you are better because of this word. We can understand your promises. We can understand where it is that we came from what it was that Christianity was built upon the back of. But God, I pray that we would be uncomfortable in our Christianity. Not because it doesn't make sense and not because it isn't simple or anything like that, but, but because it, Christianity should be uncomfortable. It should rub against societal norms. And so God, I pray that we would just take a hard look inside each and every one of us, inside of our own hearts and see if there is that friction or am I just pretty comfortable? 
Because God, we know you've called us to, to a real Bible-based version of what it means to walk according to your word. And Father, maybe there's some here today for the first time or joining us online who, who have not yet placed their faith in you. Maybe they are still walking the way of death rather than towards the way of life, as the apostles' teaching put it. They're saying, hey, I want to jump in. I want to be a part of this family. I want to know that at the end of the day, I'm going to heaven. If that's you, with head still bowed and eyes still closed, you can pr pray along with me in the quietness of your heart and just say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I've fallen short of your glory, fallen short of what it is that you would require of me to get to heaven. I admit that. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross to take those sins, to take my transgressions, to take all of those things onto the cross. That he would die and then rose from the dead three days later. I believe that, God. And see that I would choose to follow you every single day. That I recognize you're calling me to something greater. It's much more difficult, but it's greater. And so, God, I pray that I would jump in with both those feet and I would choose to follow you every single day. Father, I love you so much, and I'm so thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.